Jonathan Gaylor discusses why he feels bullish on LNGs. And after his segment, you might too. In Ferris Complex news, China cooking coal futures increased by 8.13% over two trading days. Pei is here to discuss what happened. If you have questions about the EU ETS, I did too. So I brought in Hugh Taylor and Luke Hanley from our EU ETS consultancy to give me some answers. All this and more on Freight Up. Freight Up! Welcome to Freight Up. My name's Fernanda, and I'll be your host as we navigate the seas of freight and commodities. This week's episode is a bit of a long one, so grab some popcorn, go out for a run, do whatever you need to do, because it is a good one. This week, we're joined by Navigate's Jonathan Gaylor, FIS's very own EU ETS consultants, Hugh Taylor and Luke Hanley, Smith 7 and Pay. So let's dive on in. Here's Navigate's Jonathan Gaylor. So we are in the booth with Jonathan Gaylor from Navigate. Jonathan, how are you doing? I'm very good. How are you? Very well. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's so excited to have you. Welcome to Where the Magic Happens for the Freight Up community. Uh, so you are the LNG guy. Apparently so. I don't get it. <laughs> Apparently so. Would you uh, yeah. please tell the Freight Up community a bit about yourself? Sure. I'm currently working at Navigate, uh, working as a business manager slash alternative fuels manager for the wider group. I work alongside the bunker trading company as well called Integrate, trying to head up a bit more of the trade on the LNG side. Before that, my background was predominantly also in the LNG alternative fuel space. I worked for eight years for Affinity Shipping, a shipbroking company, also located not far from here, and basically forming new LNG bunker hubs on the commercial basis. And before that, it was my background was slightly different. It was geological, so it's oh, wow. uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a shift, jack of many trades. Yeah, well, the oil price went down, so I had to find another job outside <laughs> oil in geology. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I love it. And your time at the shipbroker explains why the uh, screaming outside didn't deter you. Exactly. It's at home for me. <laughs> Background noise. <laughs> oh, you were like, oh, <laughs> home. <laughs> I guess the first question I have is a bit of a two-parter. Mm -hmm. And that's, what are the difficulties that you've seen so far in the LNG space? And Tell us a bit more about the journey of other alternative fuels. Everyone's focused on alternative fuels. You know, we should be looking at a wider portfolio of fuels from the start. So this is not a case of LNG is the one. This is just more of a case of, you know, coming from, I would say, more of a commercial background. You know, what are the challenges that we face, particularly in the shipping industry, moving to these fuels? You know, everyone likes to talk about ammonia, methanol and hydrogen. But we're, we're just simply not there yet. If we're looking from the trading side, from the freight side, we have to look at fuels that are available today and within quantity to be able to actually bunker. Hence why like, I'm probably a bit bullish today on LNG. But, that's, but I like to think of, you know, let's do stuff today rather than let's talk about 10 years ahead. So I would say the challenges that we face mainly that there's technical challenges always at play. They're currently looking at that in ammonia. They're looking at that in methanol. The technical ones are kind of overcome now, uh, thanks to the likes of SGMF, Society of Gas Marine Fuel, and some of the majors that have really implemented the bunkering to start with. But really what we're, the biggest challenge right now is still the liquidity and availability in the market. LNG has been around for 40 plus years, but actually pricing it in a, you know, a smaller package is still pretty hard to actually get that costing. I think most people can now estimate a rough 
in tank price on the LNG, but still it's, you know, it's still variable. Are you coming up prompt? Are you coming up long-term, you know, long-term contract? So the pricing, how to price a commodity is still up in the air, I think. The other aspect is really assuming you have a commodity and then you also having to sell it onto a, like a bunker contract. And that bunker contract is very different to historical LNG contracts. We're done on like long-term deals, 20 years, you know, nothing on a spot basis. And now we're going into pretty much one of the hardest industries to actually contract in the fact that you've got these long-term charters, but only a short-term off-taker. So how, how do you manage that balance between the two? And I think that is quite hard to manage. The other aspect is the challenge, which I, I think we'll see in LNG. Well, we've overcome a lot of the challenges in LNG, but the other alternative fuels, the other challenges I see is it's like the commodity is not really there yet. It's not liquid. So how are people going to be trading this more on a spot basis that isn't just long-term offtake contracts? So it kind of seems to me like LNG is uh, another level of complexity beyond where the other alternative fuels are. Does that kind of speak to its commercial viability? Correct. I think it's also due to the sheer quantity. It's been around for 40 years, you know, so. That helps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And on top of that, it's, you know, we're seeing new pricing mechanisms being evolved in the market over the last 10 years. We've had the emergence of JKM, which is a Japan-Korea spot marker. That's only really in the last five years started to become more tradable. And there's also the futures on that as well. So I think overall, you know, we've taken this long to get to even just spot prices of LNG. So I think we're still not there yet, even on smaller packages. So how are we going to replicate that with the alternative fuels? Will happen. <laughs> <laughs> we are optimistic, but there is a ways to go. So on that note, what are some of the barriers that you see for some of the up and coming alternative fuels. I hate saying the chicken and the egg because I really, because <laughs> everyone, you know, you go to every, any interview and they'll say the same. So I'll try to not lean on that too much. I would lean on what is actually the difficulties of getting there. Methanol is not going to be good unless it's green and same with ammonia. Otherwise, it's just worthless as I think. You just don't like the color blue is what yeah, I'm hearing. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's not my color. And so when you're making it, let's say you're making it from electricity, green renewables, you have like, let's say a PPA contract, you know, a power offtake agreement. These are huge contracts that are very difficult to sign, you know, long term. They're just very difficult contracts. And then you're having to merge that with some kind of like bunker offtake contract. If you have a container vessel that's willing to do, let's say, a long term 10 year, 15 year horizon, that's fine. But many ship owners aren't going to sign up for a 10 to 15 year offtake agreement. It's going to be hard for people to produce alternative fuels just for the marine sector if they're not going to sign long-term contracts. That makes a lot of sense. So as far as long-term contracts go, that's kind of within the realm of container liners. So can you tell me a bit more about that relationship? Correct. Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, you have to look at the viable shipping sectors that would suit perhaps probably more the long-term things, and that is containers and crews, and that's because they're going there regular. But I think we saw before that CMA and, you know, these other shipping liners, they were willing to sign up longer-term contracts, and this was pre-COVID, right? So LNG prices were pretty low, they were competitive, and I think, you know, long-term, it looked pretty healthy. 
But actually, you know, since uh, COVID, since the natural gas prices, the war in Ukraine, the volatility in prices is too much. So, you know, we saw a lot actually go back to other conventional fuels because the price was so high. So I would say whilst containers are suited for the long term, they're being, I would say, a bit more conservative now of signing up mm -hmm. those volumes. When you buy a dual fuel vessel, you want to have that optionality between the fuels. You want to pick the cheapest fuels. So what we actually saw, which was a big thing in the market, was actually CMA apparently is going to convert their new building orders from some of their methanol to LNG. And the one thing to note about that is to the LNG vessels or the LNG dual fuel, they do cost more than a methanol dual fuel vessel. But if they're willing to make that investment. Correct. And I don't believe it's just from the green side of things. I think it's very much just shows that I would say the medium term, most people see that LNG will be a very competitive fuel in the market. There is a slight green side to this as well, but I also think willing to pay the added capex shows the market that um, this is probably the most reliable green fuel for the medium term at present. Fantastic. Well, I mean, it sounds like it's pretty great to be you right now. <laughs> Well, we're seeing, we're seeing, you know, this volatility is actually helping traders. We're yeah. not going to lie, which is good for us. I mean, we want to get into this space. We have the expertise and, you know, historically everything was done long-term direct. And I think people now are seeing the role of the trader, uh, particularly in the bunker fuel side for LNG. So yeah, it's good for us. I mean, you know, TTF and all these gas prices, they're changing, you know, on a daily basis and they're changing massively as well. So going back to the subject of new builds, as we cast our eye to the future, what do you see the future of new builds looking like for the next five or 10 years? Now, I think it's, it's one of the hardest ones actually for ship owners to go out there. You know, you're asking a ship owner to go out and spend you know, huge amounts of capex on a 20 year asset. And it's probably backed by a very short term charter. So how do you manage that risk? Again, I am bullish more on the gas side of things just because I see that, you know, we have the fuel today and there is also a way that you can actually manage that over the next 20 years. You can start with LNG, then go to bio LNG, you know, slowly input bio LNG, and then you can end up, I don't know, methanating hydrogen or something like that. So there is a pathway to those vessels. When it comes to methanol, if you're a tanker, if you're a bulker, you're relying on other industries supporting that production because you will not be supporting the producer on that. You, your volumes just aren't big enough or the offtake isn't as reliable. So I would definitely say, you know, probably the methanol is likely the way that people will go because it's a lower capex. But the actual thought of actually green methanol going into those tanks, I don't actually think they'll be seeing green methanol for a long time. You heard it here first, <laughs> folks. Jonathan's hot take. <laughs> one last question. It's a bit of a saucy one. Okay, nice. <laughs> as far as traders are concerned, what do you foresee their role looking like in terms of alternative fuels for, I don't know, the next decade? It's something that we think internally all the time. The, the role of the trader is, tra is changing. That's a fact, you know. Bunker fuels will never be just basis price anymore. There's going to be other factors. You know, there's the environmental factor. There's going to be the EU ETS. There's going to be the fuel EU. If people start putting a charge on CII, you know, there's going to be all of these different 
different elements that will play a role in selecting your fuel. And the other aspect is as well, you still have the role of biofuels. Let's say you have a dual fuel vessel for LNG. You still have LNG, bio LNG, biofuels, you know, conventional fuels, scrubbers. There's all these decisions to make and you have to make the right one. I think the trader has to be very aware of the pricing in the different regions, which is going to be very hard considering these prices aren't transparent. I very much see that the role of traders should actually become more important to the client because they'll be able to cover a lot more. For those of us who are interested in watching the LNG space and, uh, you know, maybe we don't really have a means to do that or the channels, what would your suggested uh, course of action be there? I would just very much keep an eye out on how this winter is going to be. Mm. I think there's going to be a huge show to the market of where LNG prices are heading. We're just what one winter away from the Ukraine war with yeah. the supply issues and the, the highs last year. And we're already going into this winter where we have enough supply in Europe. The prices are coming down. We're bunkering already LNG in Europe. So, you know, with 70% new capacity over the next few years, if we come out of this year where we believe that there is sufficient supply, I'm quite bullish that the prices are going to show people that LNG will probably be the fuel up until, you know, let's say 2030 or something. Well, there you have it, folks. Jonathan is bullish on LNGs and you probably should be too. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the EU ETS with Hugh Taylor and Luke Hanley. So I'm Hugh Taylor. And I'm Luke Hanley. And we manage a consultancy at FIS, which helps our shipping clients prepare for the EU ETS. Phenomenal. The EU ETS, not the most straightforward of things. What are you guys doing to help? So that's the EU emissions trading system, which from January next year will include shipping clients. We at FIS have a lot of longstanding relationships with many shipping clients. So we've done a lot of thinking about how best to simplify this complex situation for our clients. Today, we thought we would talk about three practical issues our clients are facing, and then we'll offer some insight and solutions around these. I'm assuming because you've dedicated an entire roadshow to this. In fact, you just got back from Dubai, I believe, and Luke's crawled out of whatever conference he's been at recently. Uh, I'm assuming we're not going to be able to capture everything on today's episode. Correct. So I think we better skip over the basics. For anyone listening, I would like to know a little bit of background on how the EU ETS works, the EUA market and price drivers, emissions, price risk management and trading strategy. Check out the analysis section at the bottom of our green transition webpage, which is at www.freightinvestorservices.com forward slash green hyphen transition. So I've written some expansive articles on those topics. Fantastic. And because we're so technically advanced here at FIS, we've actually hyperlinked that on our website. So can you give us an overview of what we're going to be covering today? Yeah, sure. So the three issues that we're going to talk about today are who pays, the challenges of opening a trading or registry account and how to get around them, and how best to trade EU allowances, EUAs. So the first one is probably John's favorite question, which you both have been graced with very frequently around the halls of FIS. And that is, who's responsible for paying for this? 
So that's right, it's a bit of a thorny question among clients. The question is, who bears the responsibility for surrounding EUAs on September 30th, especially when a ship owner delegates the ISM code compliance to a manager? And in short, the answer really is it depends. In a September draft text, the commission defines the responsible entity as the shipping company. So this definition includes owners, managers, bareboat charter, or indeed any entity that assumes the responsibility for operation owner. So while the draft does stipulate the ship owner has principal responsibility for ETS obligations, a manager, if delegated responsibilities through a management agreement, is obligated to submit allowances. So therefore, the parties can effectively choose who has responsibility. If the manager is chosen, he must present to the relevant administrating authority a documented mandate from the ship owner, including contact details. If he doesn't, well, the ship owner will be deemed responsible. The Commission aims to finalise regulations in Q4 of this year before the EU ETS for shipping commences on January 1st of next year. We expect them to provide more clarity on this situation. Keep your eyes peeled or keep your ears peeled. So how does this actually play out in practice is my question here. How we perceive it at uh, the consultancy here is that two scenarios are likely. Option one, the ship owner and the manager will decide responsibilities in their bilateral management contract. And then option two is that the manager remains responsible for EU surrender if the ship owner delegates then the ISM co-compliance. So this is a process that has been in place for the past two decades. Although recent indications suggest the EU is probably going to shift its thinking towards option one. Meanwhile, simultaneously, member states must ensure that if another entity assumes ultimate responsibility for fuel purchase or ship operation, for example, the shipping company via contractual agreement is entitled to reimbursement for surrendering costs. So I guess my big question is, if Luke and I have a contract, and in that contract, Luke is responsible for surrendering these EUAs, but, you know, Luke, I don't know, disappears, who's responsible for these EUAs? Is there a penalty? Do I get the penalty? Does Luke get the penalty? What happens? That's right. So there is a penalty um, to disincentivize this behavior. So if the ship owner fails to transfer allowances to the manager or becomes insolvent, then the manager is left empty-handed while still accountable for these obligations. So depending on a ship's trade and emissions, non-compliance costs can average €500,000 per year or even more. Coming back to this example that Fern used, basically, Luke will get off scot-free while Fern is left holding the bag. Well, Luke would never do that to me, first of all. But second of all, what solutions are available for those like Fernanda that are unsure about what their surrender requirements are? Yeah, so there definitely are a few solutions out there. And one in particular that comes to mind right now is for those uncertain about future obligations, creating an EUA buffer is definitely a popular strategy amongst clients. You can do this via trading account futures or something we call warehousing, which we'll get back to in a minute. For legal disputes or questions between charterers and ship owners, contact us and we can introduce you to our preferred legal specialist who is who is very experienced in these negotiations. So... I'm assuming we have something, and by we, I mean the European Commission, has something a bit more concrete for how to open a registry account. Well, actually, as it stands, this is equally confused and it has been a messy scramble for shipping clients, to be honest. Shipping clients aren't currently able to open a maritime operator holding account uh, or a MOHAR which is the account from which they will eventually surrender their EUAs on 30 September 2025. So they're not able to open to this account until February 2024. So that's when the Commission releases 
a list that assigns shipping companies to a country, to a national administrator within a country. Now, while it's widely stated that you are currently already able to open a trading account on the EU registry, in reality, this is also not the case. One of the central stipulations most national administrators of the EU registry seem to have put in place is a requirement to be VAT registered locally. Now, given many shipping companies are incorporated in non-EU, often exotic jurisdictions, we have a problem. But equally, I've spoken with English clients facing the same issue. So theoretically, what would my options be if I didn't have a VAT registration in an EU country? One country that decided to not make such a stipulation was Malta, which instead requested you just have an EU bank account. But they were so flooded with applications, basically, they closed to further applications and with a backlog of some 300 among just a handful of staff. Uh, There were other exceptions. So Netherlands don't require EU VAT registration, just an EEA bank account. But uh, they do do a risk analysis on the country of origin, which means some of those exotic locations might present an issue. And they also request that you register with the Chamber of Commerce, which essentially means setting up a local entity and paying corporation tax on local business, which is not ideal. Meanwhile, Spain and Sweden don't require local VAT registration, but do ask that one of your two minimum account representatives have permanent residence in the country. And finally, Cyprus requires VAT registration in an EU country, although I have been told competing versions of this by different contacts within the registry, and their situation seems likely to change. So in short, uh, if you don't have a EU VAT number, the situation is pretty difficult right now. The EU will have to change things in Q4, we believe, to provide a clear path forward and, and clear up this mess for the many medium and small-sized shipping clients that are unable to get started. Just to clarify something here, they can't actually buy EUAs then? There are actually other routes. There are other ways they can do it. Firstly, for example, you can buy futures even without a trading account through some clearing members, uh, as long as you promise to trade out of the futures before expiry. And if you don't have a clearing account, there is one other option that Luke's alluded to. Um, Warehousing. (laughs) Warehousing, that's correct. But before we get on to that, we should probably first go over our final topic, which will give an introduction into how to trade EUAs. All right, fine then. Tell me, what is the best way to trade EUAs? Okay, so you can buy EUAs in the primary market, which is via the auctions hosted by EEX, or on the secondary market, which is via banks, brokers, or traders. They come in the form of futures or physical EUAs. These are just the contracts that go into your registry account and that you will eventually surrender. While of some of the bigger, more established traders are keen to hedge the futures, perhaps in line with their strategies on bunkers or forward freight agreements, FFAs, many and particularly the mid and smaller size shipping clients are seeing value in buying physical EUAs on the OTC market. Why is that? The advantages of this are many, and they can probably be split nicely into two groups, basically cheaper and easier. So cheaper, well, firstly, maintaining an auction account on EEX can be expensive, and it's typically populated by big industry. The physical EUA is seemingly cheaper up front, 
So over the past three years, the benchmark DEC23 future, which is the main future that's traded, has been on average some 3 to 6% more expensive than the spot price. Finally, big banks build in credit risk and large margins, thus adding to the price. Now, easier. So to trade physical, clients don't need margins or clearing accounts. OTC physical can be obtained in custom, more convenient lot sizes of whatever size you like. So the smallest size in futures is one lot, which is a thousand EUAs, but the smallest size in OTC theoretically could just be one EUA, although it wouldn't be much worth it from a cost perspective of the provider. And many people often prefer physical products to futures because you can hedge as you go and spread the risk. And finally, the liquidity is very good on the physical. So basically, you would come to a, a broker like us, give us your size, we field it to the market. Now we work with all the top EUA traders, many of whom have got their own large inventories, and we would then show you the best price, which is quite a big advantage over going to just one trade house. So long story short, cheaper, easier and cleaner. So now is one of you going to tell us about warehousing or... So I'll do the honours on that one. Yeah, this one idea gaining traction is that of warehousing EUAs on behalf of clients. Some of our preferred partners that we work with offer this facility, whereby the client agrees for the EUAs to be held for them and delivered to an account of their choice at some point in the future, given 10 days notice. So these partners even offer a warehousing yield to hold your EUAs, which at the last time of checking was in the region of 2% per annum. I'll list a few advantages of this option. So number one, you avoid the admin involved in trying to open a trading account with overburdened national administrators. Number two, being able to buy now, so getting ahead of the game. Uh, number three, many don't even know yet whether the onus will fall on them to actually buy the EUAs. And finally, and most importantly, in our opinion, the idea of going long on EUAs is something attractive, given that stringent climate policy and their subsequent tendency to increasingly limit supply. And, and crucially, so the idea of going long EUAs is quite attractive to our clients at the moment, given the EU's stringent climate change policy and the subsequent tendency to increasingly limit supply. Based on current forecasts, many leading EUA analysts expect the EUA price to rise significantly to 2030, well beyond the 100 euro mark. For example, analysts at London Stock Exchange Group two weeks ago projected the price to rise above 400 euros by 2040. Well, we've covered a lot of information in a very short amount of time, but I feel better informed. I think the Freight Up community feels better informed. So thank you so much for coming on. Uh, yeah, thank you for having us, Fern. And just like to say, yeah, get in touch. We offer weekly Intel reports to our clients. and We do special reports on things such as main price drivers in the market, short and medium term price projections, etc. And we can answer any of your questions. So yeah, get in touch and we should help you along. Yeah, normally when people say, and I'd just like to add, they follow it up with, I'm a huge fan of the show. <laughs> so I'm just going to pretend that's what you said. Oh, and I'd just like to add, I'm a real f huge fan <laughs> of the show. I think you're such a natural. Oh, God bless you. Thank you so much. All right. Let's join the People's Broker to discuss the oil market. Archie, I know that you are literally one of two people on the desk right now, so we appreciate you joining us. R Ricky's back, so that's why I've come. Oh, Ricky got good. back from lunch, yeah. Oh, what did he have yeah. for lunch? Uh, I think he's got Pally Kitchen. Don't know what exactly he went for, but that's gonna, where he's gone. I'm going to go for the falafel bowl after this, but Enjoy. before then, what is going on in the oil market? 
It's been pretty choppy, lots of ups and downs uh, over the last week, to be completely honest. It's definitely all eyes on the OPEC meeting, which kind of leads into why it's been choppy, because the OPEC meeting was initially supposed to happen on Sunday, just gone. Yes. But last week that got pushed back. And when that got pushed back, crude just dumped. Yeah, it came off really aggressively as soon as that news came out. Like someone rescheduling a Tinder date, you just don't know if you're <laughs> yeah. going to come back from that. It creates that uncertainty, <laughs> like like the Tinder date. You don't know what the outcome's going to be. I think general consensus leading up to that meeting before it got pushed back was the decision was going to be for the oil production cuts to be extended further into 2024. So with that being pushed back, everyone was like, oh, you know, is there been disagreements? It, you know, speculation starts happening. It snowballs, crew really came off because obviously that level of support that would have been added by production cuts uh, being extended was almost, it was, it's not been taken away by any means, but it just, yeah, like I said, it adds that kind of level of, uh, of mystery. So it got pushed back to this Thursday, as in tomorrow. Another thing, when, that, when the crude really did come off, it was a week ago today, actually, it was last Wednesday that it happened. You know, it crashed well over a dollar, like sub 80 levels down to, uh, well, the low was actually 78.48 at the time having traded around like 81.50 most of the day. But then in the afternoon, it, it pinged back up, pretty much instantly recovered uh, or regained all the losses to settle, I think, slightly higher on the day. There was a lot of volatility in the market there. The downward pressures did linger for the rest of the week and then into the beginning of this week, particularly from, well, obviously off the back of that announcement. But then, yeah, there, were, there was lingering pressures from EIA data which showed a massive uh, US crude stockpile build mm. of like 8.7 million barrels, which is substantial. Solid. Yeah. So that was obviously yeah, pushing prices down a little bit. There was a small gasoline stockpile build as well in the US, which is, which is often quite a good indicator of low consumer demand. So, you know, then kind of demand worries sneaking back in as well, applying downwards pushes on the price. Most times that we've dipped below the $80 per barrel mark recently, there has been support included yesterday. There was another announcement regarding the OPEC meeting oh, saying wow. that there, it possibly could be pushed back further. Basically, what we're hearing is there's quite a lot of disagreement uh, within the OPEC members regarding this policy on the oil production cuts. As far as the market is aware, the meeting is happening tomorrow. But it was, you know, like I said, this news came out yesterday, just that, that it could be pushed back further. So we saw... A similar thing happened than we did last last Wednesday. Not quite as drastic, but it was a sharp decrease, down about a dollar, again, sub-80 levels. But then we did find support in the afternoon. It kind of traded back up to higher levels, but that was from quite a sharp fall in the US dollar. And there's normally kind of an inverse correlation there. You know, when US dollar gets less valuable, crude goes up because holders of foreign currencies are buying more oil because they've got greater buying power when the US dollars weaker. Yeah. Uh, so that that offered support there. And then again, you know, we kind of spiked into the afternoon. We spiked to, to above 82 per barrel coming from sub 80 levels. So it's been pretty drastic. So this morning, crude prices trading higher. It's just looking ahead to this this meeting, which hopefully happens tomorrow. I think I think the market's <laughs> oh kind of yeah, I think the market's kind of banking on it hope ha happening tomorrow, and unless anything drastic changes. It would appear that the expectation is back that production cuts will be extended into 2024. And I think that's what's offering support to the market this morning. Although any kind of major upside gains are definitely being capped by some weak 
data coming out of China still, mm. softer than expected industrial profits, which kind of points to demand struggling in that region, which has been a kind of ongoing factor. Well, since, since post-pandemic, really, it's always kind of lingering there. Um, yeah. But when it comes to demand worries, applying that downward pressure on oil prices. So let's see what happens tomorrow. Let's see if tomorrow happens. If tomorrow <laughs> happens, yeah. In the fuel market, I think that the main kind of focus of what I'm going to talk about is the front months in the very low sulfur sing complex. And they've really, really been crashing over the week. Oh, wow. What's been happening there? We're coming off of highs from the beginning of last week. So looking at the crack, the Sing 0.5 crack, that was trading uh, for the December, which is the front month. That was trading at almost $18 per barrel Monday last week. So right at the beginning of last week. And we're now uh, kind of around, we're, we're sub 12 levels now. So it's off a good six or seven bucks. It has been lower. Uh, Monday of this week, we saw some super volatile trading in that crack contract, which makes the flat price uh, for the marine fuel just fly around. I think a lot of it is coming off of Alzor refinery news. Uh, I think it's Q8 one of the biggest refineries, if not their biggest. And Al the Alzor refinery is a massive producer of this very low sulfur marine fuel oil. It's been down for maintenance and repairs, uh, hence why the crack did get so high in the first place and the front spreads as well, because there was no marine fuel coming out of that refinery. And being such a big supplier, that really kind of affected the market. When the Azor refinery is fully operational, it produces about 200,000 barrels per day of very low sulfur fuel oil, which equates to about uh, 12 million tons a year. Anyway, with that being down, crack got really high. And then there's been news kind of coming through in drips and drabs over the last week, 10 days, saying, oh, it's going to be fully operational, back fully operational in the next couple of weeks. And that's kind of softened that that front crack a bit. I don't think that refinery news alone is the cause of all this. I don't think it's robust enough. I don't think it's enough production to affect the market in such a drastic way. But it's definitely seemed to be the kind of catalyst, if you will. And then mo Monday when we saw the super, super volatility in the, in the 0.5 crack, I think a lot of that was, uh, it was, it was coming off quite drastically in the front. It definitely hit some stop losses, some major stop losses on the way down because it was gapping like 50 cents which is aggressive. I mean, normally this crack, if it moves, it's in kind of five to 10 cent increments. Yeah. So if it's gapping 50 cents at a time. Noteworthy. It's, yeah, it's seriously, seriously dramatic. And like I said, I think there was obviously some stop losses lower down as we were coming off anyway in more of a natural way. Those stop losses got hit, sold out a load of positions and it just snowballed the downward spiral. So, I mean, it, the deck traded as low as $10 a barrel. It was literally, it was like 11 10 50 and then 10 in like five seconds was everyone, everyone was like everyone thing? was like what's going on <laughs> i mean great time if you're a buyer right but <laughs> with the volatility we've seen it just kind of bounced straight back up i mean in that morning session it dropped two dollars 70 that contract in in a single session but then it kind of recovered almost like two dollars of that loss within the next few hours so we've seen some real volatility in the front although it has it, it's down to more kind of stable levels than what we were seeing when it was like 17 dollars per barrel 18 dollars per barrel and same for the front spreads on the sing point five so the deck versus jan that's off like 20 bucks since two weeks ago to yeah it's the same story basically yeah. it's the same narrative you know with ours all being down that near-term supply is tight so that's why the deck was trading at such a premium to the jan which is, you know, it's, it was good for those who, who need to roll uh, positions from deck to jam. So they're getting quite a hefty premium on that. 
But again, that's now trading around $10 per metric ton from like th- over 30. So yeah, some real kind of drastic changes in the fuel market. It seems to have kind of settled a little bit today and yesterday. Uh, it seemed almost maybe priced in, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of how that unfolds when Alzura is fully back operational. China have issued an additional 3 million tons of fuel oil imports on non-state firms. I mean, when that news came out, there was no real major shift on the market initially. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see kind of if that does affect the paper market at all, if that does affect the tourist market and how people interpret that. I thought if anything, it would have been slightly bullish. But, you know, like I said, market's been coming off. And then, I mean, in, in today's trading, nothing too crazy to report. High sulfur fuel oil has been out of the window for a little bit because obviously all this focus has been on low sulfur. Yeah. But th- that's those spreads are pushing this morning and yesterday, actually, up, up about a dollar yesterday and up about a dollar this morning. So Amazing. Well, Archie, the podcasting booth is now sufficiently scented of Dior <laughs> This is an opportunity for you, all the fans of Ace Smith 7 here. I wanted to get him something nice for Christmas. So <laughs> I was thinking... Uh, a bottle of his favorite perfume. No, that's too expensive. And so you can help with this <laughs> by commenting <laughs> on our latest LinkedIn post. Just comment hashtag the people's broker. And if we get at least 10 comments, I will show up with a bottle of Dior Sauvage no, for don't be silly. your favorite broker. <laughs> don't be silly. Seven. <laughs> Do it. Do it. I dare you. <laughs> this year, it's going to be a gift oh. from the freight up community. <laughs> All you have to do is follow us on LinkedIn at Freight Up Podcast and then comment hashtag the people's broker and he will magically get Dior Sauvage. It's going to happen, Archie. I feel it. It's in the future. Tell your mom to get you something. Oh, wait, she's listening. Don't get him perfume this year. (laughs) Get him something else because I'm going to take care of the perfume. So you guys have to, you know, scramble to find something else for him. I hope so. (laughs) Archie. As always, you've Thank been you incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Yes. Welcome to your Dry Freight Weekly Report. So the Cape market witnessed a week of significant surge in both rate and trading volumes in the futures market, which came as a surprise to many market participants. In the underlying iron ore market, spot prices reached an 18-month high, surpassing the $135 mark due to supportive policies from the Chinese government on property and credit, driving up steel demand and prices. Additionally, coal demand remained robust in key regions, contributing to higher rates for smaller vessels. Any previous losses were recouped in the latter part of last week, with strong gains observed at the start of this week. In Cape Size News, market sources said that more owners are considering ballasting towards Brazil for late December Lacan. In anticipation, the vessel supply outlook in the North Atlantic could become even tighter. In terms of fixtures, the key C5 iron ore route West Australia to China was fixed from sub $10 for early December Lacan to $11.25 for, for December 8th through 9th by the end of the week, as owners gain an advantage from tighter supply. In the Atlantic, moving iron ore on the C3 route from Tuberau to Qingdao was fixed much higher from the last done level to $24.50 for 20 December onwards, and then $27 for 9 to 14 December, given significant increase in activity. Strong iron ore demand from China has certainly kept the sentiment on the positive side for the start of this week, which was a change from last Monday, where we opened with little to write home about, as both November and December traded lower from the onset. 
post index saw the prompt months trade in $400 range, with November and December trading down to 19750 and 16400 respectively. Thursday saw a huge spike in both volumes and rates as December contracts ended up peaking at $20,750 in the evening session, which was up $3,150. January traded up to a high of 14,500 plus 1,800, and Q1 saw an increase of $1,250 with trades at $11,750. A big finish to a spectacular week for the Capes as December rallied $1,800 after a huge index increase of 5,855, an increase that the market has not seen for some time. January traded up to 15,500, and notably, Q1 traded 12,500 a few times. December sold from 24,000 down to sub 23,000 before finding a level. For all you Panamax fans out there, the fundamentals have remained consistently positive, with Panamax rates continuing to strengthen throughout the past week. Robust mineral demand provided support for the transatlantic runs from the USEC and NCSA. In the South, a tight tonnage list combined with a healthy cargo list contributed to the positive market conditions. In the Asian market, there was an emergence of more Indonesian coal cargoes in the latter part of the week, resulting in record volumes in the region. Significant fixtures were observed on the transatlantic route, particularly with mineral cargoes via the USEC redelivery to the continent. Japan and India at the levels of 31,000, 33,000, and 36,000, respectively. There was early support to start the week last Monday as December shifted up to a day's high of 13,900, January to 11,300, and Q1 stayed just under 11,000, printing up to 10,950 in size. Fast forward to Friday and prompts were the focus and saw the most gains as December chased up to $16,000 and Q2 broke the $12,000 resistance to print at 12,150 while Cal24 traded up to 12,500. The afternoon saw December retrace to support at 15,150, Q1 back down to 11,900, and Cal24 at 12,300. This Monday, December traded up to 15,900 before retracing in the afternoon. Cal24 traded several times between 12,450 and 12,700 before stalling and losing most of the day's gains into the close. And last but certainly not least, for all you Supermax fans, last Monday we saw December and January trade in a range of $350 and up to $13,400 and $11,100 respectively. Q1 traded to $10,600 and Cal24 up to $11,600. Fast forward to Friday and we had quite a bullish day as prices pushed up throughout the morning trading session with December and January trading up to 15,000 and 12,900 respectively, while Q1 traded in size at 11,500 while printing up to 11,700. Cal24 traded up to 12,175. This bullish trend didn't stop there as it continued this Monday with December and January trading up to 15,000 and 13,200 respectively, while Q1 traded up to 12,400. While the rates stalled in the afternoon, the curve closed higher than Friday closing levels. And for your overview on the FFA market, we had an extraordinarily busy week for dry FFAs, 
with daily volume surpassing 20,000 lots last Thursday and Friday, marking the highest future volumes week ever, resulting in total trading volumes reaching nearly 97,200 lots. By vessel size, Cape Futures saw the largest volume traded, averaging 8,290 lots changing hands per day. Panamax and Supermax has also experienced an uptick in trading activity with an average of 6,835 lots and 2,960 lots traded daily, respectively. Options trading was comparatively moderate, with 3,150 lots cleared in Cape and 1,810 lots in Panamax. In terms of contract periods, the primary focus of interest was on December Q1 and Cal 24 to 25 contracts, along with decent sizes traded in Jan 24, Q2 through Q4, 24. That's it for this week's Drive Freight Weekly Report. It's time for your Ferris update with Hal Pay. All right, Hal. So big news in the China Coke and Coal Futures. We had an 8.13% increase during the past two trading days. What's going on? Yeah, it's quite abnormal because uh, if we think about oil market, the crude oil, like 8%, it's also abnormal, but it happens sometimes in the year. It happens every year, right? The craziest moment of two-day or three-day growth, like 10%. I'm not surprised. But in Coquinco, it's much more slower market than iron ore. Normally speaking, it, there must be something happened. And yes, because some of the coal mine accidents in China in November finally attract attention from the government. So the government started different groups of inspection teams to supervise the production lines, the miners, and to evaluate safety of miners. Well, it doesn't say anything about any impact of the coking coal or coal production, but generally in the market. They believe that it has to some uh, direct production impact on the coke miners for a long time. So that's why the futures market bumped up ahead of any other products. And following the futures growth, we saw like there are two rounds of physical coke price growth by 201, which account for roughly 7 to 8% on the physical market as well. So this is quite, this is pretty much the direct reason to support this growth. I see. So this was a pretty unprecedented uh, step taken by the government. Like no one in the market was expecting this, it sounds like. Yes, because normally the government will send out like files and documents and talk to the miners, leaders, probably starting inspections on the accidents of miner, but instead of the whole province, and the lands can take up to from seven days to a month. But this time, the lands they expected the supervision probably take like three months to six months. So that's a lot. So that's no one expected before. So I think this is something it's totally out of expectation of the market. So then do you think this uptick will impact the FOB Australia coking coal in the long run? The answer would be quite limited. And first of all, we have to say it has an impact over the FOB market because all the coal market is connecting the Asian Pacific area. It's all seaborne and coking coal, but I think it's limited. Well, first of all, the tightened supply in China's domestic coking coal result into an import demand in November. So as FOB Australia used to have 
uh, 67 premium over CFR China in early November, but now it is only $2. So which explained that China import potentially play a key role in the market of uh, November in the seaborne market of Coquinco. Well, in addition from mid-November, India buyers are returning from holiday and looking for restocking. The impact has already linked to the seaborne market and probably seaborne market has already reviewed what happened in China like a month before. So I think the after all impact and uh, the after news impact will be uh, limited compared with last month. And however, the steel margin in China and most areas in Asia was quite negative. Thus, if FOB went too high, they will look for alternatives and even think about control protection. If think about market share wise, I think pricing will not be too aggressive because uh, the major Australian miners are listed the companies. They have to think about the market share versus the earning margin at a time in particular for year end. They need to optimize the financial balance sheet and cetera income flows. And they need to see numbers like shipments target approach and reach instead of selling into a high price. And in particular before, because next month is the last month of the year and which should consider some contributors to help with those annual reports and the stock markets and investment markets. So what I'm trying to say is, I think it's better for miners to grab more shipments and sell more cargoes instead of direct raise price for the FOB market. So I think the impact from China's side for this time will be quite limited. Okay, but that is for this time. So that means that we'll need another update next week to see what else is going on in the future. Yeah, let's see what happens. <laughs> exactly. We need to follow this. Thank you so much, Hal. And we know that you will keep your eagle eyes on this and keep us updated for next week. Thank you. Well, you did it. You made it to the end of an action-packed episode. And I congratulate you for that. But this week, instead of begging you to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, or pleading with you to go to FreightUpPodcast.com to leave us a review or comment, I'd instead like to pay tribute to the investment guru and business giant, Charlie Munger, who passed this week. With that said, until next time, amigas. Freight up!